Hello. Thank you for downloading this Downtown Hope Sermon Podcast. We're a faith-based community in the city of Annapolis, Maryland, orienting our lives around Jesus and exist to see the people of our city, region, and world thrive with the hope found in his gospel. Now, please enjoy the Sermon Podcast. As many of you know, I had the chance to study uh, last year at the University of Oxford across the pond in the UK. And one of the most amazing, stunning uh, works of architecture at the university is this uh, work of architecture called the Radcliffe Camera. Uh, We can go back to the other slide there. Um, And the Radcliffe Camera, Katie and I took this photo from uh, the Tower at St. Mary's. Um, It's a beautiful uh, building, uh, just absolutely stunning. It's a library, uh, supposedly has every book that's published in the world comes to this library. I don't think we're sent true, but there's a lot of books in this library. And, um, and to, uh, to study, uh, in, to take time to study in the Radcliffe camera, it's also called the Radcam on the streets of Oxford. Um, to study at the Radcam, you have to reserve your spot and you have to do that a couple weeks out. And there's only a small window each day that you can do that. And so finally I have the chance to reserve a seat, not in the basement, but up in the upper rotunda area. We can go to the next slide. And I just remember the day that I had the chance to study there, and it was just absolutely stunning. The architecture, the history, thinking about the hundreds of years of the people who have studied here, you know, running my hand up, um, you know, the, the spiral staircase and thinking, man, uh, who has touched this staircase over hundreds of years? And it was just, I don't think I, I learned anything in my study session there. I think I was just totally consumed with the beauty of it. And it's here in verse 5 of Luke chapter 21 that the disciples are having a similar moment. Verse 5, while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings. Here what we find at the very beginning of this passage is that Jesus' disciples are totally obsessed. They are enamored by this moment and specifically by this temple, the temple's beauty. Now, uh, the temple was originally built by, it was destroyed in 586 BC. It was rebuilt in a, in a fairly humble way by Zerubbabel. But then it wasn't until um, right before the first century that Herod the Great Um, who was ruling over that area at the time, who loved architecture, rebuilt the temple. And he rebuilt the temple in an absolutely stunning way. I mean, it was just... It was, it was just a beautiful work of architecture. Um, it, it, took him, they, it was in construction for so many years. In fact, he rebuilt all the buildings around the temple just because he wanted it to be such a wonderful uh, work and a, and a stunning work of architecture. Uh, he trained priests to build the temple um, because he didn't want to be accused of having unclean people build the temple. Um, by this time in 80, uh, around AD 28, um, he, it's, we're 46 years into the project. This is why in John 2.20, if you remember, Jesus says, I'm going to tear down this temple. Uh, the Jews are asking, but it, it took 46 years to build. Why would you, how is it going to be torn down in three days? Um, and it would take actually another uh, 30 years um, before it was completed under Agrippa in 63 AD. And in this moment, these disciples, as we find in verse 5 here, um, they are enamored by a couple things about the temple. One is that it's adorned with noble stones. Now, this isn't like, oh, here's a pretty stone, okay? Uh, Josephus' history gives us a little bit of the depth of the the weight and the power of this temple. Um, The foundation stones were 67 by 7 by 9 feet. It's pretty 
strong foundation, right? And then the stones that were actually um, constructed the temple were 37 by 12 by 18 feet in size. So when the disciples are in the temple here, uh, enamored by, by its beauty, they're like, totally astonished at the size of these stones. And then also by, these, by the offerings, this would be uh, referred to as special gifts from individuals. Um, uh, these would be things like uh, golden and bronze doors, um, golden grape clusters, tapestries. Um, the temple was just absolutely stunning. And we find in this moment, Jesus' disciples are completely consumed by it. And he gets this, and this is why um, he says what he says next. But before we go there, I just want to ask, I just want to make the observation and just give a little grace to his disciples, like they were from the country, okay? The, the Jerusalem and the temple is not something they would have seen maybe ever. Maybe this is their first time, maybe just a few times in their lives. And so it kind of makes sense. I think probably we could all relate. We would be there with them. But why, why do we get obsessed? Like, why, why do you get obsessed? Why do I get obsessed? Things that are in front of us that dazzle or sparkle. I mean, we are so easily seduced by and enamored by beautiful things, aren't we? Beautiful objects, beautiful people, things, aspirations. Um, why are we so enamored in the moment? Why does the moment, why do momentary things of beauty so enamor us? There's many reasons. I think one reason that connects with the context of this passage is because of comfort. The temple for the Jewish nation, and the temple for Jesus' disciples, would have been a point of comfort, uh, an institution um, that, uh, that expressed a kind of solidity, a kind of stability. As long as the temple is intact and the place where we worship God is intact, we're safe, we're secure, we're okay. And, and that's oftentimes why these things that are so attracted to us, attractive to us, gain our affection so quickly and we can become so consumed with them. Um, I'd say in our context, in our modern context, one of the reasons why we can be so easily consumed with the present is because of the Enlightenment Project, which we've talked about quite a bit, where in the 17th and 18th century, sort of truth and reality was reduced just down to what you could empirically measure. So everything kind of gets out. You see this in the world of art. Paintings lose their depth and they get flatter and flatter in terms of um, their imagery. And, and, and when life is reduced to materiality, just write, what's in, write uh, what is in front of us, um, it's very easy to get consumed in the moment and lose a sense of transcendence and lose a sense of future, lose a sense of what is beyond what we have right in front of us. And part of the problem with being enamored in the moment by the things that we get enamored by in the moment is that, ironically, it actually inhibits us from being fully present in the moment. So we totally get consumed by fill in the blank. Could somebody just offer me something here? We get consumed by a, come on, a car. Great. What kind of car? A Tesla, or a what? GTR. We have some GTR people and some Tesla people in here. So you consume by your car that's in front of you, okay? And when that thing becomes so consuming to you in the moment, it can actually be an utter distraction from actually being present with the real people and loving people that are around you. 
And it's here in this moment that these deci- Jesus' disciples are just, you know, googly a temple. That he drops, just like Jesus does, this really challenging word. Okay? While some of them were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, Jesus says this, As for these things you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> Thank you, Jesus, for this moment. Whereas we're all so admiring the temple and his word of encouragement to us is, oh, it's all going to be reduced to a heap of rubble. This thing that you're obsessed with in the moment, the Tesla, the GTR, is that what it is, GTR? will be reduced to a pile of rubble. And, and that is part of what this passage is about and Jesus' point to speaking to them. In fact, if you remember the context, right before this happens, do you remember what Jesus was trying to point them to? The widow's offering, something that was utterly, inherently beautiful. She's giving everything that she has, and Jesus is teaching them on it. It's like nobody even heard him, and they go right to, but isn't the temple so amazing? <laughs> He's like, guys, you're not getting the point. Let me put this in perspective for And may God this morning, through the power of his spirit, put this in perspective for us this morning. The things that you are obsessed with in this moment, they are not going to last. And we need to hear this truth because everything about the world that you find yourself in says it is all about the moment and it is all about obsessing about that thing and that thing gives you comfort and that thing gives you safety and as long as that thing is intact, you are okay in the world. And if we've learned anything over the last couple of years, we know that these, the things of this world are not what give us lasting security and comfort. This, of course, gives them panic. The disciples panic. And as soon as we start talking in biblical terms about the temple being destroyed in some way, shape, or form, we're into eschatological language because in the Old Testament, there's deep symbolism with the temple and the stability of the nation and also the temple being destroyed and what was prophesied about what will happen on and the end times and the day of the Lord. And so they ask him this question in verse 7 as we continue in the passage, teacher, When will these things be, and what will be the sign that these things are about to take place? They're understandably concerned. They have some eschatological panic, as we might say. Passages like Isaiah 2 and Daniel 7 point us to this. And they're wondering, what is the sign? We want to see the sign. We want to know. Probably because they're genuinely concerned. Probably because they are obsessed with the temple and their security, and they don't want that to go away. And the last chapters of Luke, as you've been reading and following with us in the daily, are pregnant with what we might call the eschaton. Um, The final day, that day, the day of the Lord, okay? The parousia, when Jesus comes a second time, when the man comes around, says Johnny Cash. The day that is on its way, says Chance the Rapper. What's prophesied in Ezekiel and Daniel and Jesus teaches through the Gospels and the book of Revelation gives us this picture of and something that we don't spend nearly enough time dwelling on and thinking about. And this morning we have a little bit of time to do this. 
Luke 17, Jesus is talking about the coming of the kingdom. Luke chapter 19, Jesus has come into the city. The king has come into the city, and then Jesus is weeping. He's weeping over Jerusalem. Then he cleanses the temple. There's in Luke chapter 20, the parable of the wicked tenants. And and then we come here to this passage and Jesus starts to tell them and explain to them to say, look, there is a future beyond what you are enamored with in this moment. And let's just walk through this passage here. Just a few things. Bibles, if if you haven't already, let me just point out a few things about this that are hard to hear, but so important for us to consider as followers of Jesus. And if you're not a follower of Jesus and you're hearing about this for the first time, it's so important and so good for you to hear that, look, life is not just all about here and now, but there actually is a future day coming that will bring us and draw us into a forever future. Verse 9, they ask the question, when is this all going to happen, Jesus? Verse 9, he says this, when you have heard of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must take place, but the end will not be at once. So there will be rumors of wars. In fact, we don't actually know the exact time Jesus says in Matthew 24, 36, concerning the day and the hour, no one knows not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. So if anybody ever comes up to you and says, hey, I know when, Christ, when the Christ, when Jesus Christ is going to return, you actually say, well, now I know that you don't actually know. <laughs> because Jesus said no one would actually know. Unless you really don't know, but now you think you know, and then you're actually in your naivety, don't actually know. And then maybe you might be right. But that probably isn't what would happen. You can just tell them you don't really know. So there's rumors of wars, though, that will happen. But then in verse 10, there's actual wars that will happen. And in the last 2,000 years, have we not seen a lot of wars across the world? Especially in the uh, 20th century, we've seen some horrific wars. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And then Jesus goes into natural disasters. There will be great earthquakes in various places, famines and pestilences. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. Okay, natural disasters, global pandemics, signs from heaven will come. But then he goes further. And I mean, isn't this encouraging of Jesus? We're enamored by the temple. It's all coming down. And let me tell you what else is going to happen. Okay. There will be persecution. Verse 12 through 19. It doesn't make this any easier for his followers, for these disciples. Oh, The temple's coming down, and you are actually going to be persecuted. Before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. Down a little bit further, you will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will be put to death. Is anybody here with a friend or a relative or a parent this morning? (laughs) Just look at them, and you might say, are you going to... Put me in jail. Are you going to throw me under the bus? It's a real thing, though, that has happened to some of our brothers and sisters in Christ through history and will happen to others in some room, perhaps. It's a real thing. These are Jesus' words. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. He goes on then to say, not only will the temple be destroyed, but actually Jerusalem itself will be destroyed. We find this in 70 AD, just a few years after this, as Jesus speaks these words. It's a horrific moment in the history of the nation of Israel. The temple's 
exploited and destroyed. Many people are killed. And, and in this passage of prophecy, biblical commentators say, is Jesus talking about this event in 70 AD that actually happens, or is he talking about his second coming? And, and biblical commentators are kind of like, yes, to both. And this is oftentimes how prophecy in the scriptures work is it's speaking about a real time, maybe present or near future event, while also pointing to a, an eschatological future of what one day will, will happen. And in all this, man, this really hard teaching and these things that we don't really all, always like to think about, Jesus wraps this up in verse 27, and there's actually this incredible point of beauty that is, I think he's completely juxtaposing against the beauty of the temple, verse 27. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Here in this moment, Jesus tells them that even though everything in your moment that you get obsessed with is going to be reduced to a pile of rubble. We have hope. There is a future when Christ himself will return and he will come in power and he will come in glory. He will come in a kind of weight, a doxa, that is far heavier than any stone in this temple. I love how Eugene Peterson phrases this, paraphrases this in the message. And this is where Jesus wraps this whole section up in verse 34. He says, what is the point of all this? Like, why would Jesus respond to his disciples in this moment? What is the point? Here's the point. Be on your guard. Don't let the sharp edge of your expectation get dulled by parties and drinking and shopping. I love that. Otherwise, that day is going to take you by complete surprise, spring on you suddenly like a trap, for it's going to come on everyone every once. So whatever you do, do not sleep at the switch. I, I love that. I love that, that translation, transliteration. Are you sleeping at the switch right now? I mean, I get it. Coming through this, the difficulties of this last couple years, it is easy to check out. It is easy just to say, I don't know what's going on in the world. It's just crazy. I just want to hold myself off and just be by myself and just isolate even more. But Jesus won't have that. He's like, don't fall asleep at the switch. Do not become passive in this time. He says, pray constantly that you have enough strength and wits to make it through everything that's coming and end up on your feet before the Son of Man. I love that. His disciples say, oh, the temple, it's so beautiful. Jesus says, don't be enamored by that. It's all going to come down. Rather, watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life. What is Jesus' point? I mean, how does this doctrine shape our lives? How does eschatology, is the big theological world, word, how does that shape our lives? I think this is part of what Jesus is saying. You and I, we are only out of the veil for such a short time, and then it's forever. Do not waste your life 
giving temporal things eternal weight and glory. It will only weigh you down. The enamorment of the momentary things that bring you comfort only dull your edge. Rather, Jesus says, and this is the point of this passage, look to a future. See the Son of Man coming in the clouds. See him coming in power and see him coming in glory and let it lift your countenance off of the things that are so consuming you in this moment. See him as the most beautiful thing. See the beauty in the thing in front of you, no doubt, but see through the beauty of the thing in front of you to an ultimate beauty. The beauty is just a sign towards something else. Every beautiful thing in the world is a signpost to Christ's ultimate beauty. See through it. What is the beauty in front of me? What is the thing I'm consumed by? It in itself is probably a good thing. It's probably a beautiful thing. A Tesla in itself may not be a bad thing, but it can become an ultimate thing, evil thing. And then a thing that totally consumes you. And a thing that completely compresses your world and reduces you down to enamorment in the moment. And Jesus says, look up. See, there is a future that will be forever. This is what the eschaton does. It says, there is a future that is not temporal but forever where everything here now will be lost to you and it will be brought back, restored in the new heavens and the earth through the, through the perfect eternal light of Jesus Christ. And therefore, see Jesus coming in the clouds in glory. This is how the doctrine of the eschaton shapes our lives. This is how it lifts us. This is my challenge. This is our challenge. This is Jesus' challenge to you this morning. So, I want to just take a minute here in closing and try to get really practical with you, okay? How does the doctrine of Jesus returning actually shape your life and world here and now? I want to give you a really practical spiritual practice, spiritual discipline. We talk about these five practices uh, that are that the means of grace that are shaping our lives in Christ. And this would come under kind of the overall bucket of worship because it's a little bit of what we're talking about this morning. And here is this week's uh, formational practice for us, okay? Relinking that enamors you. Is that simple enough? Pretty concrete and simple enough, but let me just talk through this a little bit, okay? Um, what would it look like this week if you went out to dinner with your family or with a friend or with your spouse or whoever, and you go to your favorite restaurant and you order your f- absolutely favorite meal, Okay? And that meal comes to the table, and you're like, thank you. You tell your server, thank you so much. I'm going to tip you well, but I need to take this in a box to go. And you wrap that meal up in a box to go, and you walk out of that restaurant, and you drop it off at another friend's house or somebody else's house or give it away to somebody. What are we doing if we were to practice that? We're taking something that's momentarily good, but maybe for some of us, could become an ultimate thing. And we're saying, I want to release this. And I want to release this in the light of the reality that Christ is going to return and that this meal, as good as it is, as much as I've spent money on it, as, as, as much as I've invested into it, is not an ultimate thing. What would it look like to create something with your hands this week, to build something, to invest time into it and resource into it, 
and then absolutely break it down. Reduce it to a heap of rubble, okay? Might that train our home to consider how vital it is that we see Jesus as our ultimate beauty, as our ultimate satisfaction, as our ultimate point of comfort. So are you down with that? Could you practice that this week? Why don't you take 30 seconds to think about what that is? Because when we talk about formation that flows from the gospel, we don't just want to tickle your ears with theology, but we want this to take place, live out in your life. So think about it real quick. What is the thing that's enamoring you right now? You just take a moment to write it down. What would it look like to release it this week in some way, shape, or form? And who would be willing to share real quick what that might look like for them? I I know I'm like pushing boundaries here in terms of putting you on the spot. Who has something that they would be willing to share? I know it takes a huge amount of vulnerability. Okay. That's a great example. So you get home from work, and then you're just continually working. So the work becomes a point of enamorment. And so what would that look like? Yeah. Put it on. That's a hard, it's hard to release that, isn't it? Yeah, I, I get that. That's good. Thank you for sharing that. So this week in your community groups, in your discipleship bands, with your teams, let's process this together. Let's talk about how the Lord is forming and shaping our lives. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning and thank you that this incredible doctrine of your return lifts us out of our obsession with the moment, our enamorment around things that dazzle us and can absolutely distract us. And we're asking that your spirit would convict us and show us what we need to release and how we need to release it. And we're asking for your strength and your power because we cannot do it on our own. So thank you, Jesus, uh, for this word, for your teaching. We want to be like your disciples, Lord, and we want to respond, however, um, with absolute enamorment of you, your beauty, as we anticipate your return. And we pray this in Jesus' name.